Habakkuk chapter 3, 1 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigiono. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses and on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the, his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know whether you've ever looked at those estimations of how much time we spend doing certain things in our whole lives. If we live, let's say, 75 years or whatever it is, somebody has calculated how much time we spend sleeping, how much time we spend getting dressed, how much time we spend eating and so on. Uh, how much time, one of the shocking ones is how much time people spend watching TV, that sort of thing. And uh, calculated all this, I don't know how accurately, because when you look up how much time do we spend in our lives waiting in line? The estimates that I found range from six months to 10 years. And I, I guess that depends on where you live, what country, because some countries you spend much of your life waiting in lines, other countries not so much. But uh, if we add to that, waiting for our computer to boot up, waiting for the bridge to go down or the train crossing to clear, uh, waiting for the marriage that we hope will happen, waiting for pregnancy, waiting for dinner to be ready, waiting for hurricanes to arrive or not to arrive, waiting for news about the biopsy or whatever it might be. We, if we could add all these up, if there were a way, we would spend a lot of our lives waiting. And as we say, no one what? Likes to wait. No one likes to wait. Well, neither did Habakkuk. Habakkuk didn't like to wait. And at the beginning of Habakkuk, we saw that he was rather impatient. And he was saying, Lord, do something. And what did he want the Lord to do? Kind of a review of where we are up to this point. Habakkuk looked around 
and he looked around. This is about 600 B.C. He looked around at the people of God and said, Lord, your people are violent. Your people are corrupt. And you're just sitting back and not doing anything. Lord, do something about your people. And then the Lord answered and said, I will raise up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk responded to the Lord and said, not that. You, you can't do that. I wanted you to do something, but I didn't want you to do that because the Chaldeans are worse than the Judeans. You can't discipline the Judeans with the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who are worse than the Judeans. And then God gave his famous answer after that. He didn't defend himself to Habakkuk. He said, the puffed up, their, their spirit is not right within them, but the righteous by faith will live by faith. That was his answer. The righteous will live by faith. He didn't explain himself. But then last week we saw that in some ways he did begin to explain himself and say, yes, I will deal with the Chaldeans once I deal with all the other nations. Remember last week we saw that cup of the Lord, the cup of the Lord's wrath. The Lord used the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to take the cup of his wrath to all the nations, including to Jerusalem and Judea. And then who would drink of it finally at the end? The Babylonians would drink of it. So that was a partial answer, partly satisfying that, yes, they will get their comeuppance once God has used them to discipline the other nations. Now, we have in this last chapter kind of a change of tune, a change of tune quite literally, because now we have a song. We have something to be put to music. And this, when we read it, you might say, this seems to be out of place. Shouldn't we find this in the book of the Psalms? Because that's what it sounds like. So we have a song at the end of this conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord, this back and forth, back and forth. And in this song, what we have is a number of, let's say, stanzas. Before we look at those stanzas, take a look at the, the heading here. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth. And uh, this, is, this is called a prayer along with five other psalms that are called prayers. The Shigionoth, we don't know what that is. But it looks like it shows up in a few psalms, and it looks like it was some sort of musical notation. Along with that, throughout this, I didn't read it throughout it, but it, there's this little word, sila, and it shows up here three times in this, this uh, chapter. And this is the only place it shows up outside of the psalm, Selah. We don't know what that means either, but that looks like it was musical notation. So it looks like that this was to be sung publicly. And then if you look at the very last line, verse 19, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, the stringed instruments, we're not certain about that, but choir master shows up in a lot of the psalms. So we know this was a prayer. This was a song to be sung publicly. Now, it, it, it has a few stanzas, and you can, you can break down the stanzas by looking at the prominent pronoun, pronoun. Because he begins with a prayer directed to the Lord, the Lord, and when you see that in our, in our translations, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that's the, the proper name of God, the personal name, Yahweh. And so in verse 2, the pronoun is you. This is a prayer directed to the Lord, calling him by name. And then we have in verses 3 to 7, 
we have another pronoun, he. Now he's referring not to the Lord with the personal name directly. He's referring to God. And he's referring to God in third person, referring to him a report about God's coming. And then you have uh, verses 8 to 15. He goes back to you. This is a prayer to God. But he's another time and now again calling him the Lord. And then we have a, a response at the end where he turns to I. And he begins to tell his response. So we have you, Lord, he, God, you, Lord, I. That's how the song goes. So the first in the Lord part, verse two, he is calling on the Lord. And this is kind of a familiar tune for Habakkuk. He's saying, Lord, do something. That's how this whole book starts. Lord, do something. And that's what we find here. Verse two, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, um, what is this report that he's heard of the Lord? O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. And your work. Now, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 5, we hear about God's work. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if if it were told... Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So what is this work about which he has heard? What's the report? The report is about God bringing the Chaldeans. And he says, I've heard that report. Look at verse 2 again of chapter 3. I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear? Well, of course he feared it. What's the work? The Chaldeans are coming. So he says, I fear this work. I've heard about this work. You announced it. I fear it. And then he prays. In the midst of years, revive it. And that it is actually it's actually masculine. Revive him in the midst of the years. Make him know. And then in wrath, and this word wrath shows up four times in this chapter, but it, it's otherwise translated tremble. And that's probably what we should how we should translate it here. In trembling, in times of agitation, remember mercy. So he's praying for him. Who would this him be? Well, we could go back to chapter 2, verse 5, and try to identify the Kim. He says there that the, I'm sorry, 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. And then the prayer is, revive him, that is, make him live. So it looks like this is a prayer for that righteous who will live by faith. Now, that's the, that's the, the opening to the song. Lord, again, do something Do it in the midst of trembling. Do it in the midst of these years where there is shaking, where there is agitation, where there is trembling. And then he turns and refers to God. And he gives a report about God's coming. Now, what we have here is a mix of, it's like a collage. It's like a visual or an audible collage of of events that he's mashing together from the Old Testament history. And For us, we have to trace these out. But for the listeners, they would recognize these as as a mishmash, a remix of of these events that that had happened in their history, most notably the the Exodus and the coming up into the Promised Land. So this is not a history lesson, but it's it's a song about, about God's exploits in coming up, coming up from the south and into the Promised Land, thinking about the Exodus, how... God was with them as he led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. 
And I'll just point out a few details here to kind of give us the flavor of it, but they would have gotten these a lot more quickly than we do. In, in verse 3, there is movement from south to north. Usually in the scripture where God is moving, he's either moving from heaven to earth or he's moving from the temple in Jerusalem out to the nations. But here he's moving from the south to the north. So we can think, oh, Egypt through the peninsula into the promised land. There are signs in the heavens. Like, do you remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in verse 4? There are signs in the heavens. There's praise on earth. Do you remember the tabernacle that was set up in the wilderness where they praised the Lord? There was lightning in verse 4, as on Mount Sinai, lightning when God gave his, his, uh, his, his law. There was lightning, thunder on the mountain. Pestilence and plague also show up in verse 5. Do you remember the pestilences and plagues that were sent on the Egyptians? And then later, uh, when the people rebelled on the Israelites themselves, the shaking of the nations in verse 6, as the nation of Israel moves through the nations and stirs them up. The removal of ancient fixed obstacles in verse 6 also. And the victory in verse 7, and here we're moving ahead probably to the time time of the judges, the removal of the early opponents to the incursion of the Israelites into the promised land, referring to Cushan and to Midian. So so these are all references, and there are probably some more here, but these are references. This is a song about what God did when he showed up, when he came out of Egypt with his people and all the things he did there. But I want to show you something here. Verse 4, it says all these things, these amazing things. He came as splendor, full of his praise, brightness, rays flashed, and uh, pestilence and plague and measured the earth, shook the nations and on and on and on. And then at the end of verse four, it says, and there he veiled his power. There he veiled his power. He hid his power. So this song is all about these amazing portents, all these amazing acts of God in which he's shaking the earth. And, and then he says he was hiding his power in that. I don't know if any of you saw the, uh, any of you couldn't help it if you lived kind of towards the beach. You couldn't help seeing something of the air show. And probably about when we're finishing the service, we're going to start hearing the air show again. We got to go and see it again. And uh, some friends of ours have a, they have a a penthouse on the beach. So we were like eye level with what was going on. It's pretty amazing. And um, so we went and saw that. And um, there were many different planes. We didn't get there right at the beginning, but uh, we saw the, uh, I don't know, I think it was the Thunderbirds. I don't know if they have F-16s or what they have. And there was some other jet that just came just came by itself, screaming by, screaming by. And we had to keep covering our ears. And then there was a biplane, you know, the stunt biplane that goes, zzz, and it, it acts like it's going to crash. And then it, it doesn't hit the water and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And when looking at those different planes, the biplane, it was doing basically all it could do. It was not holding anything back. It, it was climbing vertically, and then you would see that that was, a, that was as much as it could do. And then it would fall back and go into a, a spiral, a stall, and then it would pull out. But you could see that that biplane, it was doing all that it could do. And then those jets, one of them came screaming by, and, 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 and things trembled, and, and we, we were holding our ears. And once they passed and we could speak again, I said to the folks we were with, I said, you know, it's just loafing. I mean, that, that's just a fraction of what that thing can do. 
Because if it did what it could do, the windows would all be blowing up. I said, that's just a fraction. So we were so amazed at the power of that jet, but it was actually veiling its power. It was holding it back. It was hiding its power. How much more here when God shakes the nations, when he removes ancient boundaries like mountains, when he, when he brings plague and pestilence, how much is he holding back? That's just a, a little tiny glimpse of his power. He's veiling it in these things. And that's the second stanza. Then we have the third stanza. And now he refers back to the Lord and he addresses him personally. And he continues to do the same sort of thing. He's mixing images from Israel's history. But here he goes back farther. He goes back to the creation and mixes the creation and the exodus. Let me point out a few of these details and you'll, you'll kind of get the, the feel of it here. In, in verse 7, verse seven. I, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? And this would call up in the minds of Israelites a number of different images. Do you remember how God created the, the heavens and the earth and at first there was water everywhere? And what did he do? He dominated the sea. And then he, he raised up the mountains and he told the sea where to go. And then when the, the people of, of Israel were coming out of Egypt, what did he do to the Red Sea? He parted it in half. And then when they were coming into the promised land, what did he do to the Jordan River? He parted it in half. And so this is a, a, re, a reflection on the, the way that God dominated the seas. And I refer you back to Robbie's excellent sermon of a couple a few weeks ago where he preached on Jesus calming the waters. And he gave basically a history of God and the sea and how he dominated the waters. And then verse 8, horses and chariots. Also verse 15, in the song of Moses in Exodus 15, the horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. And here he brings up the horses and the riders. But this time the horses and the riders are not the Egyptians. The horses and the riders are God's horses and riders, the Lord's. And then the arrangement of the mountains and the waters. Once again, verses 9 and 10. Like in creation, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. And then in verse 11, we move forward to the time of the judges. The sun and the moon stood still. And we have that when Joshua was defeating the Amorites and the, the sun stood still so he could finish the job. The defeat of many nations in verse 12. March through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger as he did in the conquest of the promised land. Read Joshua and see how he threshed the nations. The defeat of the enemy with its own weapons, verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. If you look to Gideon and the Midianites, the Midianites turned on themselves and they started using their own arms against each other. And so uh, these are these are images from, from creation, from the Exodus, and from the conquest. And what this is basically is a remix. We know we like remixes, don't we? When we have somebody does a remix of songs from our youth and they maybe take a, a medley, make a medley of songs and some of our favorite songs from our favorite artists and they, they put them all together and every time the tune comes up, the words come up, we say, oh, I love that song. Oh, I love that song. Oh, I remember that song. That's what's going on here. This is a remix of at least three songs from Israel. There is the Song of Moses, Exodus 15. There's the Song of Deborah and Barak, Judges 5, and there's the song of David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22. So this is a remix. But notice the, the purpose of this remix and the purpose of all these acts of God 
And we have it in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. This sounds like pure destruction, doesn't it? It's, when you read this about God coming, about God conquering, it just looks like he's devastating everything. He is making a mess of things. He, he's, he's, he's tearing things apart. But here, the purpose of all this is the salvation of his people. And then it says the salvation of your anointed. Now, that word anointed is, we say in English that it, it's Hebrew, but we say Messiah. So that, that's that word, Messiah, anointed. In, in Greek, it's it's Christos, and in English that becomes Christ, the translation of that or the, the pronunciation of that. But it's very interesting that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, almost never, very rarely does this word Messiah refer to a future deliverer. It almost always refers to a current king who is, is reigning at that time. And so this could be, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your king your anointed king. Or it could be King Cyrus, the Persian. Because interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, Cyrus, the Persian king, the pagan king, is called God's Messiah. He's called God's anointed. And who was it who took down the Babylonians? It was Cyrus. So God used the Babylonians to punish the nations, and then God used Cyrus, his anointed one, to punish the Babylonians. However that might be, as we read this, and this is perfectly legitimate because we read this from the perspective of the New Testament, because throughout the Old Testament period, and then particularly between the Testaments in that time, there was a growing expectation that the Messiah would come, that that somebody who, who is bigger than all of these Messiahs of the Old Testament greater and bigger than all these kings from the Old Testament, that there would be a a future Messiah, a coming Messiah, a coming anointed one who would, in fact, accomplish salvation. And by the way, you could read this, that the Hebrew allows for this to be read. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation with your anointed one or by your anointed one, by means of your anointed one. So we see, we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know how God did that, and it's remarkable that it says you went out. Went out from where? Well, in this case, went out from Egypt. But we can read that and understand that that God did something even more remarkable than that, didn't he? He he went out from the eternal throne. He went out from the heaven of heavens. He went out and he came to us. and, And he took on our nature. And he lived as one of us. And and he died in our place, and he was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he reigns over all. And so we read this, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed one. And we know what that means now, and who that anointed one eventually was. Now, the sending of the Chaldeans is the big problem of Habakkuk. That is a very strange way, Habakkuk was saying, of saving your people. If you want to save your people, couldn't you have done it a, another way? Did you really have to do that? That's, that's the problematic of Habakkuk. But it's even more remarkable that God would save his people, not by sending the Chaldeans, but by sending his son to be one of us and to die in our place. You want to see a remarkable means of salvation. It's surprising that he would do it through the Chaldeans. It's even more astounding 
that he would do it through his own son whom he sent to us. And then we come to the, the conclusion. And many, many texts, uh, many translations put verse 16 with 17, 18, and 19, which I've reserved for next week. And that makes a lot of sense because these are all in I. It's all his reflection here. And yet, at the same time, our translation, I think, interestingly, keeps 16 as the conclusion to 1 to 15. And there's a good reason for doing that. If you look at verses 2 and 3, there are three words that show up there. Heard, trembling, and came. And then you look at verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, and rottenness comes into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So it looks like he's bookending one, or rather two and three, and 16 with this repetition of these same words words. And here he returns to this idea of trembling. Habakkuk reported that he was overcome by the vision of the Lord and what he was about to do. Now, notice this posture of Habakkuk. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. That's a very different Habakkuk, isn't it? From the one we met at the beginning. Habakkuk at the beginning was saying, Lord, you are doing nothing. Would you please act now? And then God says, I will. I'm going to send the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk has the the audacity to say, not that. You can't do that. And then Habakkuk, look look at chapter 2, verse 1. After he tells God that he shouldn't be doing that, he says this, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he's saying, I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to wait for God to answer me, and I will prepare my answer for God once he answers me again. That's a very different posture from what we see Habakkuk doing at the end, isn't it? Because I'm I'm undone. I'm trembling. I'm quavering. I... My bones are are falling apart within me, and I will wait quietly. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. The, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, when you have an encounter with God, it's time to stop talking. And that's what Habakkuk learned. He he was he was talking to God. And he was instructing God about about how God's ways should be. And at the end, when he got this real vision of God, of God coming, of God conquering, he said, I'm, I'm going to shut up right now. And that, that's the response you see in Scripture. When people really meet God, they stop talking and they start listening. Look at Job. Job, throughout the whole book, I demand an audience with God so I can present my case. And then he got his audience with God. And he said, I'm going to shut up right now. And then Romans says, the law of God is given so that every mouth might be shut and so that we might turn to Jesus for forgiveness, no longer boasting about the things that we when we meet God, when we see what he's like, when we, we see his power or even just a little 
glimpse of his power. And when we see his salvation in Jesus Christ, it's time to stop telling him how to do his business. It's time to stop boasting about what we have done or haven't done. It's time to be quiet and to listen and to wait. And that's that's what he did here. And once again, there are different ways to translate the, the last phrase here. He says, my legs tremble beneath me. And then it says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. That that sounds like kind of a vindictive conclusion. Like, okay, I'm going to wait, but I'm going to wait till you get those Babylonians and you take them out. I'm going to wait for that. The other translation, you'll find this, for example, in the New American Standard Bible. My legs tremble beneath me because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arrive who will invade us. In other words, and I think this fits better, he's saying, Lord, you've declared your work to me. It's a fearful work to me. It it causes me to tremble. The idea that the Chaldeans are coming and that they're coming soon. But even so, I will quietly wait. That, my friends, is the posture of faith. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. This doesn't seem right to me. If I could write the playbook, this is not how I would write it. But I will shut up because I have gotten a glimpse of you. I will be quiet now and I will wait and let you do what is best. But this is not, as we will see next week, just a question of gritting one's teeth and say, okay, you're stronger than I am, so I can't do anything about it. No, it's a posture not only of faith, but as we will see next week, it's a posture of joy. He says, I will wait quietly. And as we will find out next week, he says, I will even rejoice. Let's pray. Our God, there are many things that we do not understand. Our understanding is so limited. We would not do it the way it's done. We would make things very, very different if we could. But we get a glimpse of you in this text, and we get a glimpse of your power. And when we do that, we we stop our, our bossing, our complaining, our instructing you, questioning your ways, and we become quiet. So, Lord, quiet our hearts. All of us have things in our lives that that we we would like to change. And maybe those will change, or maybe they won't. But I pray, Father, whatever those things might be, that we would be able to wait. And that we would wait quietly, that we would wait faithfully, and as we will learn soon, that we would wait even joyfully. We pray this in Christ's name.